The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let's take your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And when you find it, please stand. We're going to read two verses here, and we'll, go, we'll take it from there. First John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be here, to stand in this place and declare your word. Father, I pray that you will give me the wisdom that I need in this hour to be honest, to be truthful, to declare your gospel no matter what. Pray, Lord, that if there is someone out here in this place that doesn't know you as Savior, that today will be that day. And for those who will listen to this message later, Lord, that you pray that you will convict them of their sins and that they repent to come to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Said, If we sin, or when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. According to Noah Webster's Dictionary of 1828, an advocate is one who pleads in favor of another to defend by argument before a tribunal to support or vindicate. And this is precisely the picture that the Word of God presents. The Lord is presented here in verse John 2, verse 1. The picture that is painted here is, is that of a courtroom. And all the major characters are there. There's the defendant, that is you and I, the sinner. The persecuting attorney is there, that is Satan. And he's always bringing accusations against the saved sinner before the judge, which is God the Father. And the job of the advocate is to defend the accused sinner in that eternal court. In our case, this is a major problem because in Romans 3.23, we read that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we don't stand a chance there. Without exception, we, have all, we are all guilty of breaking God's law. And to complicate things even more, when Satan goes before God with an accusation against you and I, he always has plenty of evidence to back up his claim because even after we get saved, we still sin. This is why it's very important to guard your testimony as a Christian wherever you go. You just don't know who is watching. And try not to give Satan or unsaved people an opportunity to bring an accusation against you before the Lord. 
how can you destroy your, t- your testimony? This can be, you know, in many, in many ways it's easy to do, but this can be in any, anything from the way you dress, the music you listen to, the videos you watch, the places you visit, the people you hang out with, they can have a major influence in your life. Your consistency or your inconsistency in your church attendance, how much time you set aside to study your Bible, your speech, and many other things. If you fall in any of these areas, Satan has a good case against you. I don't know how, but I have never been arrested, and I have never been charged with a crime, which, by the way, that is, that is a, it's a great miracle if you live the way I lived. And I have never been inside of a courtroom. I don't know what it's like in there. But I have been told that it's not a good idea to go to court to see the judge without an attorney if you are guilty of a crime. So what are some of the qualifications of a good advocate? And how well does Jesus Christ meet the description of an all-sufficient good defense attorney? So point number one here, in order to approach the judge in the eternal court, your advocate must be righteous. It's important to note that this passage where the word advocate is used is the only passage where Jesus, where Jesus Christ is called the righteous. It's critical that your advocate be absolutely in all ways righteous in this court. The one who wrote the law is the advocate of the accused sinner in this court. And therefore, he is very familiar with the law. And because he is absolutely perfect, without spot, without sin, he is the only one that is qualified to intercede on behalf of every guilty sinner who turns to him for salvation. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21. By the way, I don't have a PowerPoint. I do that intentionally because I've noticed that when, when we put the verses up there, people get sleepy. You know? So I want you to look these verse, verses up, and I'll give you enough time to look them up. You know, I, would, I don't want you to get sleepy. If you get sleepy, raise your hand, I'll tell you a joke. <laughs> so 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be, might be made the righteousness of God in him. That him is Jesus Christ. You and I have nothing to contribute to, you, to our salvation. And you are not righteous. But if you have received the gift of eternal life, According to God the Father, in Jesus Christ, you and I are righteous. This is a legal term. When you trusted in Christ, all your debt was placed on him, and his righteousness was credited to you. And so when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see a filthy, vile, depraved sinner. What he sees is the finished work of his son. 
So your attorney must be righteous to be able to discern the truth. Jesus himself, in his illustration about correct judgment, said that unless a man is himself free from the deceitfulness of sin, he cannot clearly see to properly discern the sins of another uh, person and be in good position to help him. In other words, if you are a drunk, don't put your finger on people who drink. You are not in the position to judge them. If you are a thief and a liar, don't stick your finger to another thief and another liar. You can't judge them. You don't have that right. You notice that when you witness to people, they always find a way to get around this, and they always compare themselves with other sinners, people who have done worse crimes or sins than them. They always compare themselves with other sinners to justify their sinful, depraved lifestyles. But Jesus in Matthew 7 and verse 5 said, That hypocrite first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shall thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So your attorney must be righteous to speak truthfully, because speaking truthfully is critical in the defense of the defendant. And again, I need you to turn to John 18, verse 37 and 38. Uh, when Jesus was being interrogated by Governor Pilate, Pontius Pilate, John eighteen thirty seven, Pilate therefore said unto him, Are thou a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. 38. Pilate said unto, unto him, What is truth? That's very interesting, you know. In a very sarcastic way, he said, What is truth? That was clearly a very stupid thing to say because the truth was standing right in front of him. And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Now, three times Pilate declared that he could find no fault in Jesus. John eighteen thirty-eight, John 19, verse 4, in John 19, verse 6. And yet he allowed the people to put him to death. Why? When you read this, it looks like Pilate was the one on trial and not the Lord. And he wanted to release him. And as the governor, he could have done it, but he didn't do it. And we always ask, why? This can get complicated for the average person who to understand and unless you know a little bit of bible you will never make sense this thing doesn't make sense so i'm going to take a, a very small bunny trail here and i'll get back into to explain a few things uh, kyle made a reference this morning to this verse in, in genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 god himself prophesied the first time the death of jesus christ and as you read through the bible you find that the event of the crucifixion was an agreement that took place in eternity past 
And you and I are not capable to comprehend this. In Genesis chapter 22, you have a perfect picture in type of God the Father and the Son when Abraham placed his only beloved son Isaac on the wood and he was ready to sacrifice him. And the Bible goes on to say that God provided a ram. That's Genesis 22, verse 13, as a substitute for Isaac. But 2,000 years later, there was no substitute to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 20, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12, you have the Passover. And the word of God tells you that the only way to avoid the death angel was to apply the blood of the lamb on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the house. Whoever refused to get protection under the blood would die. Now we always say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three and one, and one and three, and the one in the middle died for me. Did he die for you? Psalm 22 is known by many as an x-ray of the cross. A thousand years before anyone was put to death on the cross, there was David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, providing a detailed description of the crucifixion. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, tells you how much the scribes and the Pharisees thought that Jesus Christ was worth. According to them, he was worth 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a slave. Zechariah prophesied this over 400 years before Christ, and that prophecy found its fulfillment in Matthew 26, verse 15. Isaiah 53 provides further details about the crucifixion of our Lord. It goes on to tell you that he was, in his human form, an average man. You couldn't tell apart. Nothing special, just an average man. And in his humiliation, he never opened his mouth. This is what it will take for your salvation and mine to be accomplished. The perfect Son of God was willing to submit himself into the hands of wicked, depraved sinners to be nailed and hang on the cross to die. That's the price. You know, our salvation, like I always say, is free. You don't pay for it. It doesn't cost you anything. But it really wasn't free. It cost God the Father his son. He never, never protested or resisted, even though he could have spoken the whole world out of existence right there and then. When he was arrested, brave Simon Peter was ready to take on, to take on the, the Roman army and fight to defend the Lord. But Jesus told him to put away the sword. And he said, if I want, all I have to do is pray to my father, and he will give me more than 12 legions of angels. Matthew 26, 53. For those of you who know the Bible, in 2 Kings 19.35, you read that one angel in one night killed 185,000 men. If the Lord Jesus Christ had prayed to the Father for 12 legions of angels that, that day, that would have been the end of the human race. It would have been a total wipeout. But it's a good thing that he didn't. I said all that to say this. 
Pilate was just a politician, just like the politicians of today, just a crook. He was not interested in knowing the truth. He washed his hands, and he thought that he would just walk away from it. But he couldn't walk away. He didn't take the time to investigate who was the man before him. He had no idea that he was contributing to the fulfillment of prophecy. And if he had released the Lord Jesus Christ, every Old Testament prophet would have been found a liar. So he couldn't release him, really. The death of Christ was not an accident. And every person that was going to participate in accomplishing every prophecy concerning his death was there, and every detail had to be precise in order for the scriptures to be pure and without error. So we should never underestimate our sins, because if Jesus Christ is not your Savior, and if you should die without Christ, one day he's going to be your executioner. Point number two. You attorney must not flatter to sway the court. He must, he must not succeed in the case by some cunning trick in the trial. By exposing the facts truthfully, otherwise he, in his victory, will not truly be victorious. It will be a lie. Jesus never had a word of guile in his mouth. We read in, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 22, who did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In Isaiah 53, 9 we read, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich his, in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. So the attorney that is going to plead your case must be righteous and without sin to truly understand the power of the consequences of the sins of the defendant. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 reads, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It's interesting when you try to witness to young people, you know, young people are very stubborn and they think that they can win by giving in. and That's not the way it works. You never know the power of the wind by lying down on the ground. You always know the power of the wind by standing up to it. You never know the true power of an army that is coming to fight against you if you surrender to it. The only way to know the power of that army is to fight against it. In this case, nobody Nobody has the qualifications of our Lord. He is the only one who can fully understand sin, and therefore he is the only one who, ha who can fully defend any man who comes to Christ charged with sin. That's everybody without exception. So your attorney must be righteous to tell all their hearers, to let all the hearers know that he, in seeking justice, is in, and righteousness, in the case, is doing it for the sake of righteousness. He is not a hypocrite. He must, in his righteousness, put, righteousness, put to silence all the people who are accusing him of being insincere. 
You remember in John chapter 8 when he was being challenged by the scribes and the Pharisees. In, in, John, in John 8, in verse 46, we read, Which of you convinces me of sin? He probably stuck his finger on their faces and they couldn't say a thing. And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? Good question, right? Point number three. The attorney who is going to speak on behalf of the, the, of the repentant sinner must truly understand the law in order to defend the lawbreaker. That's you and I. Jesus Christ grew up with and under the law. We read about that in Galatians 4 and verse 4, which says, But when, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. His life was a fulfillment of the law, and his miracles that he performed were his credentials, that he was truly the Son of God, and that he was qualified to declare sinners free from the penalty of breaking the law. And therefore, he is the only one who is qualified to intercede for you and me. Even though you are guilty of all the crimes that your accuser is bringing against you, and you see, to, to truly understand this, you have to be a true Christian. You know, Miss Lita was saying on, on, I think it was last Wednesday night, that only those who have been truly sinners have an enormous appreciation for their salvation. It's very difficult to get this point across to those who have not been in, in the sewer. They, they just don't, 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 don't grasp it. So, salvation, like I said, is not free. To know that the Son of God took upon himself the penalty that we deserve, and he willingly went to the cross to suffer the agony of hell for you and for me, but that's not all. The moment that you trust in Christ, he takes your sins away and gives you his righteousness. This is what is known as the doctrine of imputation. In this case, it's double imputation. It takes away your filth, and he gives you his righteousness. Jesus Christ is the only one who has been able to keep the law. Only he qualifies to have power over death and hell. And because breaking the law is a crime against an infinite God, the penalty that is due is infinite. And you can deal with your sins in two ways. You can either turn to Christ and he will give you and clean you up or you can reject him. And you'll have to pay for your sins yourself. And like I said before, eternity is a long time. You'll never finish paying. The law that we have broken requires a payment and a payment will be made. Sad thing is that you don't have what it takes to make restitution because you have committed a crime against an infinite God. So the punishment has to be infinite. And without the right attorney, you're not going to make it. Matthew 5.17 we read, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am, come, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
So every point in the law will be fulfilled. Speaking of points, we're moving on to point number four. You look at the character of the attorney. The first thing you look when, I never had an attorney, so I don't know what it's like, but if you ever had one, does your attorney care about you, about your safety and your protection? In this case, Christ cares about the safety and the protection of his clients. Jesus, show, Jesus shows earnest concern for the life and the protection of every client. In John 10 and verse 10, we read, The thief cometh not, not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that, ye, that they may, might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus is very defensive about the, about the protection of his clients. And if you are a child of God, no matter what, what happens here on earth, your final destination is heaven for sure. Again, I'm going to need you to turn to John 10, verse 28. John 10, 28 says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 29, My Father which gave in them is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Since this attorney cares, and the defendant knows it, the defendant can freely tell him all the problems concerning his case. And by the way, he already knows it anyway, so why would you hide it from him? He cares like nobody does. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast in all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. The advocate must know every person, every client, every case that comes to, to him, and he is able to help and solve every one of these cases. He knows all the clients, all his clients by name. I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to give you the, the references. You can read them later. So he knows all his clients by name. That's John 10 and verse 3. Also 2 Timothy 2, 19. Acts 15, verse 8 and 18. The knowledge of his clients is one of trust and intimacy. That's John 10 and verse 14. He has all the facts at his disposal. That's Proverbs 15 and verse 3. He knows the details of every case, and he can skillfully sift all he needs in favor of his client. In the Bible, Satan is pictured as, a, as the persecutor of the brethren. You can read that in Revelation 12, verse 10. And since Jesus knows the hearts of all, he knows every plan of attack that Satan is going to use against you and I. And when defending us, Jesus can use this knowledge to his advantage at every turn. We are told to watch out for the wiles of the devil and to be aware of his tricks 
and schemes. So now imagine how well our advocate knows every trick that Satan is planning against you. Before he makes a move, he already knows what he's going to do. So in your Bible, Satan is pictured as a dragon, as a beast, as a serpent, as Leviathan, as a sea monster, as someone who is able to transform himself into an angel of light. And in Peter 5.8, he is pictured as a roaring lion looking to devour anyone in his path. So even a very strong Christian doesn't stand a chance against Satan. If you are a Christian who neglects your Christian life, if you drop your guard, Satan will look for any area in in your spiritual life that is lacking wisdom, and he will have a field day with you. You won't lose your salvation, but you will destroy your testimony, and you'll probably never be used again. Number five, the advocate must, must know the ground on which to rest his plea for success. The propitiation is mentioned in direct context with Jesus Christ and his role as an advocate. His propitiation is the, is the faultless ground on which Christ rests his case for you and I. With this plea, he will never and can never lose a case. So again, I had to look this up in, in Noah's Webster Dictionary of 1828 to find the proper meaning of this word. And propitiation is the atoning sacrifice offered to appease the wrath of God. This means that every person in the world who refuses to repent of his sins is like a criminal sitting on death row in a prison cell, waiting for the executioner to come and grab him and take him out and chop his head off. For those of us who are saved, we know that Jesus took upon himself all of our sins. That is the equivalent of a complete stranger stepping in front of the executioner and say, take me instead and let him go free. That's what took place. This shows you how ugly sin is. And for Adam and Eve to have witnessed the death of an innocent animal and to have God clothe them, clothe their nakedness with the skin of a lamb had to be a shocking experience and a very clear message that the penalty of sin is death both physically and spiritually. So number one, the propitiation is powerful in scope, is powerful enough for any and all who will come to Christ. That's what we're reading about verse 2. It says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but, for, but also for the sins of the whole world. So number two, the propitiation is powerful in love. Christ's propitiation is one of the highest expressions of his love for his people. If you have anyone who is willing to die for you, that's great. You know, anyone can die for you, but nobody can save your soul. In this case, Christ not only died, but he also is able to save your soul. 
First John 4 and, 10, and verse 10 read, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You know, as I look at this congregation, I, I can never understand why is it that this church is not full to the brim. I never get that. The love of Christians for other Christians should be a very special thing. You know, you look at Brother Maungo when he comes here and how he talks about the people that he witnessed to out there and how much work he puts into to reach people for the Lord with very little resources. And we have a beautiful building, enough money on our account, nice air conditioning when it's hot outside, nice heater when it's cold, and people get sleepy. I never understand that. But anyhow, we're supposed to love each other, care for each other, look after each other, call each other out, hold each other accountable. All those things is part of the Christian life. You know, I don't like to miss church because when I do, every time I do, I know I'm missing out on a blessing. And even after a long day at work on Wednesday nights, you know, I come home super tired, but when I see the people of God, I am refreshed and I feel good to be around these people. And I'm reminded right there and then that this is not all there is. One of these days, we're out of here. So I like to spend time with the people of God. But some of you, not all, but some, when our pastor is preaching here, I like to stay in the back for I got a reason. I'm not going to say why, but I sit in the back now. But I, I look, and I notice that some of you, immediately after our pastor is done with this last point, you get out of here faster than a bat coming out of a sewer pipe. I mean, you're gone before we even look. What happened? They're gone. So, don't be so hasty. Get to know the person sitting next to you. Spend time with them. We're going to spend eternity. So why not get to know each other here before we get there? Number three, the, propitia the propitiation is powerful in its foundation. There is nothing stronger than the blood of Christ. In Romans 3 and verse 25, we read, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. You know, I looked this up and I couldn't get my head around this. This, this verse right here demands a great deal of work to truly get it all. What makes this so amazing is that Jesus Christ is our advocate. That's your defendant, your lawyer. He's our savior. He gave his life to purchase you and me out of the kingdom of Satan. This is great news for those of us who are saved, but for those who don't know Christ, this is bad news. You know, I always said that for me, there's one thing that the Lord cannot do. He cannot come soon enough for me. I'm ready to go. But for unsaved people, this is bad news. They don't want the Lord to come. 
because when he does, it's not going to be pretty. He not only has the power to kill the body, but he also has the power to destroy both the body and the soul in hell, the Bible says. And again, I need you to turn to John 5, verse 26 through 29. And we'll read a few verses and we'll be done here. You know, you can hear it, but from my ear, the turning of those pages is a beautiful sound. John 5, verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. 27. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that they have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So he can either be your savior, or he can be your executioner. You know, I always, I'm always aware of what I'm doing when I get up here. This is the one thing that truly scares me to death to get up here because I know that one day I'm going to give an account to God for what I say from here. Every person who gets up here will give an account to God. And from this pulpit, you can either edify the people of God or you can send people to hell. And I'll be responsible for that. This is why I'm making my point not to put the verses up there. I want you to look them up. And not only reading, but studying them. Make sure that we are telling you the truth. You know, I understand that to the average unsaved people, I don't know if you've ever seen someone come to church and immediately after the introduction to the sermon, they walk out. They can't take it because it's like putting acid on an open wound. You're stepping on their tail. They don't want to hear this. So I understand, for the average person, this sounds, this sounds like hate speech. But it's my sincere desire that you don't end up in hell if you're not saved. I can tell you for sure that nobody loves you more than the person who's telling you that God is not going to put up with the foolishness of this world forever. One of these days, time is going to run out, and God is going to say, that's enough. And when that last sinner is saved, judgment will begin on this world. If you get to that point without Christ, it will be too late. Thank you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege to declare your word. Again, Lord, I pray for our pastor and Pam. Pray, Lord, that you put your hand of mercy on them. Also, Lord, put it in the heart of your people to be available and willing to step up and help at any moment, Lord. We praise you and thank you for the privilege we have to declare your word. Pray for you. Missionaries overseas, Lord, that are working diligently to make sure that your gospel goes out. Help us, Lord, to, to be always ready and available to give an answer. Bring us back on Wednesday night, Lord, so we can study your word even more. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.